Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we share the stories of how different actors up and down the value chain are working to take climate action through food. It's all about inspiring collaboration, discussing the good that is happening, the challenges we share, and realizing a common vision for our future food system. I'm your host, Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. Wasabi is considered one of the most difficult plants to grow. It's extremely finicky and requires specific conditions and a constant stream of fresh water, which has isolated it to the mountains of Japan. Because of that, it's also really rare. And I hate to break this news to you, but when you've ordered sushi with wasabi on the side, you are not getting the real deal. That green stuff is in fact a combination of mustard, horseradish, and food coloring, dubbed by the Japanese as Western wasabi. But oddly enough, it turns out that Iceland does have the right conditions to grow wasabi. Yurt Hydroponics figured out that they could use greenhouses, geothermal energy, and Iceland's fresh water to grow Nordic wasabi. In this episode, we speak with Ali Hall about Nordic wasabi's startup story. We cover everything you need to know about real wasabi how they even figured out they could do this in Iceland, the amazing possibilities that come with greenhouses, and the challenges of being the first company in Iceland to try and export vegetables. To understand the impossibility of this operation, it is helpful to see some photos and videos. I added a bunch of visuals to the episode transcript on Substack. You can access that by following the link in the show notes or going to www.nordicfoodtechpodcast.substack.com. Outside of Japan, there is only one other producer of wasabi. They're in England, and they have a different system for growing it. I've added a video of that too, so you could see the difference. And here we go. Ali Hall, welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. Today, we're going to dive into the world of wasabi and I don't think there's a better place to start than talking about the fact that there's wasabi, as I've known and experienced it my whole life, mainly through eating sushi, which is not actually real wasabi. And it was only once I met you that I understood that there is something else called real wasabi. So can you tell us what that is? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, So what most people know as wasabi, the thing that is served with takeaway sushi, the kind of green paste that looks like Play-Doh in a way. It's not actual wasabi. It's a mix of uh, horseradish, mustard, and green food coloring that's been disguised as real wasabi for uh, a long time in uh, Western worlds. Uh, real wasabi is actually a vegetable that's grown uh, mostly in Japan, and it's uh, known to have been used since, uh, I think it was the Asuka period, and then uh, it was used uh, for medicine a lot. And then it was in the early 1800s where there is first any historical notes on wasabi being used with foods. And uh, the thing is that wasabi, real wasabi, has uh, some, it has antibacterial activity. So it was served with uh, raw fish in the early 1800s because you didn't have access to refrigeration like we have today. And this is uh, kind of uh, the origins of wasabi is that it was used for fish preservation, at least in foods. So then how did we get from real wasabi, which was used with food, to now primarily consuming wasabi that is not actually wasabi? Wasabi japonica, uh, the plant itself, it is considered one of the hardest plants in the world to grow. That's also why it is one of the most expensive plants you can sell legally at least. Um, And that's uh, kind of the main reason why uh, people are uh, using the fake wasabi alongside the sushi, because it's just been such a scarce ingredient that it hasn't been uh, widely available, at least in the Western markets. It's uh, also just that people don't have the knowledge that there is something called real wasabi out there. It's always fun to, when someone uh, enters our office or randomly uh, stumbles onto our store in the city center of Reykjavik and asks what we are doing, and we tell them we are growing wasabi, and they kind of look at us like, are you growing the tubes, or what is it that... (laughs) 
<laughs> you're growing, and so we we usually like okay, let me show you. So we take the we take the salmon, we prepare it, and give them a little bit of a taste. And it's uh, it's like I'm gonna say that 98% of the time, people it blows their mind just both the flavor and that there is something that actually exists that is called fresh wasabi. So just to spend a moment on the taste of real wasabi, yeah. can you describe how it's different from what we're used to? And then one thing I found super interesting is that it has a peak flavor period, meaning that you actually need to, once you shave it and start grating it, I think it's that you need to consume it within 15 minutes for the maximum amount of flavor. So like, what are you tasting and what's the the deal of how real wasabi is? Uh, yeah, you're correct. It's considered that wasabi is best the period of between like five minutes after grating up until 20 to 30 minutes. That is the peak for the wasabi flavor. That's also one of the reasons why wasabi hasn't been generally available around the world is because you need to prepare it fresh. You cannot uh, mm. grate the wasabi, put it in a takeaway box and then have it two hours later. It will have lost all of its uh, characteristics and taste. And uh, the taste of fresh wasabi compared to the fake one in a way uh, that's it has a completely different flavor it's much more fresh it uh, has a little bit of like a creamier texture and better mouthfeel and you get the kick out of it that you're maybe familiar with from fake wasabi but it's a good kick you get it through your nostrils and it's because of a chemical compound that's called halyl isothiocyanate uh, that's the compound that gives wasabi its flavor, its kick, and uh, what is considered to be have some of the most medicinal benefits in the wasabi plants. And uh, it works different than, for example, uh, the capsicum that's in uh, the spicy chilies and stuff like that that burns your tongue and you have like 30 minutes where you just want to chug a glass of milk trying to get the spicy flavor out of the mouth. This goes through the nostrils. So you get the kick. It's very intense for a few seconds. And then it uh, goes down and you have this kind of uh, creamy, spicy thing to it. That it's just something you have to experience. Yeah. Because as you mentioned, the stuff that comes in the tubes is made from horseradish and mustard, which belongs in the wasabi family, but it's much cheaper to produce, which is how it became so prevalent. And I was fascinated when I heard this story that one, most of us have never seen the wasabi plant or been aware that it grows in these very special conditions in Japan, but it ends up having a story that's way more like truffles and the whole culture around truffle hunters and the process and the art and like literally artmanship and craftsmanship that goes into cultivating such a crop. So can you talk a little bit more about how wasabi is grown in Japan and why it's such a hard crop to grow? Yeah. Like uh, what happened with truffles is that they figured out how to create this kind of synthetic truffle flavor just a few years back. And it's not regulated in a way. So everything that has this flavor, it can be sold as truffle oil or has truffle aroma or truffle flavor without containing any hint of truffle at all. But that's something that's new. Most people, they know they are not having real fresh truffle when they have the truffle mayo at uh, some kind of uh, fast food place because it's everywhere now. Uh, with wasabi, the knowledge isn't there with so many people. They don't know that there is something that is a more premium actual product. Yeah, the way that uh, wasabi is uh, grown in Japan is that it's uh, in this kind of rocky uh, mountain riverbeds and it has a constant flow of uh, clean water coming down from the mountains. And it also needs kind of a very specific climate. It needs a little bit of a shadow. It doesn't like too much sun and doesn't like too much heat, but you still have to have enough heat. And it has, um, it needs the correct conditions. And in Japan, it also requires a lot of uh, manpower to harvest because you need to walk up and you need to take every um, uh, individual rhizome out of the ground. What's uh, happening now in Japan, it's uh, kind of sad because we have these generations of wasabi farmers that have been doing it for a long time and these large-scale wasabi farms. And uh, the younger generation, they're more uh, looking to go into the cities and doing something else. And so there's no one taking over the wasabi farms. And as uh, the farmers get older and they're starting to retire, it's... Uh, 
I read an article that said that uh, the wasabi uh, harvest of Japan could go down by uh, 40 or 50 percent in the next few years just because of this generation mm-hmm. gap. It's a really sad thing to see because at the same time we are seeing a huge boom in Europe and the Western、uh, in the Western world of actually people gaining knowledge about wasabi and wanting to try and use the product and. I hope that we have something to do with that. Maybe so. I mean, it's a story you hear happening all over the world that we're losing some of these heritage traditions and relations to food.、Um, but of course, it also begs the question of if this has only been grown in Japan, how on earth did Nordic wasabi start producing wasabi in Iceland? Yeah. So.、Um... Since I was not one of the founders, it was、uh, Ragnar and Sinti, and so I'm、uh, working mostly with Ragnar now. And sometimes it's just like looking at him the next desk and like, what were you thinking? How did this like? How did this come <laughs> up? Like, it's so insane when I just like if I have like a moment of clarity and like we're actually growing wasabi in the east coast of Iceland. And、uh, before I started like full on working with wasabi, I was heavily connected into the restaurant industry. So every time I was、uh, heading abroad. I was like picking up wasabi、uh, stems just to like bring it to my chef friends and showing them, look at this! It is amazing. We are growing this in Iceland, and so、uh, the thing is,、uh, it takes a couple of brilliant minds that have an idea, and that was uh, Ragnar uh, Atli and Sindri Hansen, and they were in、uh, the engineering department at the University of Iceland, and it was during.、Uh, What I believe is like a, a sort of an entrepreneurial class, and they were looking at ways of how to utilize the resources we have in Iceland and the kind of vast resources that we have of、uh, clean water,、uh, renewable energy, the geothermal heat. They wanted to create some product that was viable for export. They started looking at all the things you could grow that had a high margin. Because export costs are really high out of Iceland, because we're an island in the middle of Atlantic, and so it's always、uh, we always need to fly it out. After、uh, looking at various herbs, spices, and fruits and vegetables,、uh, they、uh, came to the conclusion that the wasabi plant might be the best one. And actually, we are able to mimic kind of the conditions it grows in in Japan, because we have a similar climate. We have a very clean. Water. We're a volcanic island, similar to Japan, and、uh, then we also have in Iceland. We have the technology and knowledge of growing vegetables and fruits in greenhouses, and、uh, also maybe there was a little bit of、uh, luck involved as well, because、uh, one of the main costs of setting up your、uh, greenhouse is actually building the greenhouse and finding a spot for that. Also, you—it's kind of easy to convince investors that, yeah, you're gonna grow cucumbers. You know, cucumbers. Cucumbers are nice. Like everyone knows that, and like it's gonna grow in a few months, and we can start seeing some results. And going into an investor meeting and saying, so this exists. It's called wasabi. We're gonna grow it in Iceland. It's never been done, and it's gonna take a year to a year and a half before we see any results. So, are you in? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> And thankfully, we had a lot of really,、uh, really good people backing the project and、uh, believing in the project. And at the time when、uh, it was starting up, there was a greenhouse that、uh, was a state-of-the-art greenhouse in the east coast of Iceland, about as far away from the city center of Reykjavik as you can drive. It's an eight-hour drive, and there were two greenhouses that suddenly became available. And、uh, we just jumped on the、uh, on the chance, and Ragnar and Sindri spent the entire summer of 2016 in Eilstadir, one of the warmest、uh, places in Iceland, and the sun was shining, I think, for the entire time. And they spent it in a greenhouse that was completely empty, extremely hot, and planting every single wasabi plant by hand. And that's kind of how it began. And then it was just waiting for a year and a half. And、uh, when we saw the results, I think everyone had like a sigh of relief of like, "Ooh, okay, this is actually really good." <laughs> I mean, in terms of risks in entrepreneurship, it's pretty crazy to be a student <laughs> saying, "You know what? Let's spend a year and a half seeing if this can happen." Where we also have to use a pretty high tech, very expensive infrastructure setup to even try,、mm-hmm. and then the waiting and waiting and waiting. I just wonder, like, what did? The team do in that year and a half they were waiting patiently to see if the wasabi would grow. 
then it just starts becoming a waiting game and a sales job and trying to find investors and keeping it afloat and just talking to as many people as you can. And then uh, we had a deal with uh, two of the best restaurants in Iceland called Grill Market and Fish Markets, and they are owned by the same company. And they committed to buying a certain amount per week of the first year. And so for the first year, we could only sell in Iceland to those two places, but it became so popular that they started buying even more than they had signed on to. And then uh, we had to look abroad because they had the kind of license in Iceland. And for the first year, um, it was uh, considered it would be the best option to begin focusing on the Nordic countries, just because of the shorter routes and the more uh, kind of familiar environments and the better connections Iceland Icelandic people have to those countries. So mm. it was actually, uh, there's a funny story. In the first trip that Ragnar and Sindri went, the first sales trip with Nordic Wasabi, they went to Denmark and they just kind of started walking between a few restaurants, which they had been uh, told about. In the first day, I think uh, in the afternoon, someone called them from Noma and like, wait, are you guys selling fresh wasabi that's grown in Iceland? Yes. Can you come to Noma and show us? Yes. And that's how uh, Noma started buying fresh wasabi from Nordic Wasabi. And it was... Uh, it was before they opened Noma 2.0. And for their opening day of Noma 2.0, they had some courses that had wasabi in them. And the most important uh, delivery of wasabi heading out of Iceland got lost somewhere in Germany. And everyone was panicking in a way. And you, there's yeah. just a certain amount of yelling that you can... Um, that you can do when you're dealing with logistics companies and chefs and everything. And it ended up with uh, Sintri actually having to just take a new shipment, flying out himself to Copenhagen in the morning flight, bringing it to the restaurant uh, just before lunch and then heading back to Iceland in the afternoon. So that's probably one of the most expensive uh, shipping costs you can incur on a, on a fresh produce. <laughs> but... Uh, the product, it has to taste good. You have mm -hmm. to be able to back it with the product itself. And that's something that I feel we are completely capable of doing. We've taken it to some of the best restaurants in Europe and some of the best chefs and some of the most uh, prolific sushi chefs even in the Nordic countries. And we've had generally very positive reviews. We're hearing that it's the best wasabi that you can get, like finally outside of Japan, that it's available. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a great compliment that you get. Like I, I took it to the kitchen at Nobu in London at one point. And I think uh, because you have Japanese chefs, they are really protective of their heritage and they want to use Japanese products in a way. So I think when I was showing up there, it's like, Icelandic dude with like a bag of wasabi and like, hey guys, we grow it in Iceland. I think the first response was like, yeah, okay, sure. And then they tried it out and they were actually quite impressed and they gave us uh, some really good reviews and a lot of tips for uh, how to move on and who to talk to. And, and then just generally knowing that there are some of the best restaurants in the Nordic countries that are constantly buying a steady supply of wasabi using it in their courses we have we have noma we have aoc we have jordnar in denmark some of the best and most upcoming uh, restaurants in the world right now i'd say and then uh, all of the restaurants in iceland uh, i saw you talk to kunikali at dill yes at restaurant dill we have a podcast with him on his whole search for reviving heritage uh, heritage foods in iceland yeah, he's uh, he's a fantastic chef, and the things he's doing is um, amazing. And they use the wasabi a lot at Dill, and the same goes for Oaks. Well, what strikes me is that every single food entrepreneur that's come on this show ends up saying that what exactly what you said. It you know, no matter what the brand or the story is, or how much money you get, taste is really the deciding factor. And if you can stand on a good product, it'll work. And I also love that your story mirrors a little bit Saltbarks, which is another podcast we did with um, an Icelandic startup producing salt. And they also went to Copenhagen and knocked on the doors of all the restaurants being like, hey, try our product. We're making the sea salt. And mm -hmm. just the kind of classic door-to-door -door salesman coming and carrying the wares and trying to make the way. I, It's funny to me how like the old school way just still works really well. 
Yeah, the thing is, I'm born and raised in the restaurant industry. It's like, uh, it's what I know. And it's a certain language that you have to speak. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a different tribe. There's also this huge element that I think the role of chefs has changed a lot, where when we think of food innovation, they're also such a major platform and more and more startups and other businesses are going to them saying, I have this new product, this novel product. Will you test it and will you put it on your menu? Because not only can they almost do the R&D of figuring out what recipes does it fit in, but they also have a stage for putting the dish out there, making it taste good. And then you start to understand, how can I actually eat this? So when you speak about the language, the thing that I've had a lot of discussions around and kind of building these collaborations between these different worlds is having translators that speak the chef language versus the business language versus the startup language versus the academic language. And how do you have those people that can move between the worlds to have it make sense? Because they do communicate differently. And it sounds like you all have uh, tapped into that a little bit. Yeah, it's uh, you need someone in your uh, in your team that can act as an interpreter between uh, chefs and restaurant managers and then uh, the sales team and the business side of things, uh, it needs to be able to uh, communicate. And the investors and everyone else that you (laughs) need to, the suppliers, the logistics, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of people in that. Exactly. It's a very, it's a friendly industry. There's like competitiveness, but at the same time, uh, I think everyone is fully aware that everyone is going to benefit off another restaurant actually kind of doing well because it will uh, force another restaurant to actually push it up to another level. For example, in uh, Copenhagen, it's actually, they've got a term for it now. It's called nomonomics. I think I read that, or I made it up for some introduction at some point, but I think I read it somewhere. But actually what happened after uh, Noma got the first place and the second Michelin star, and now the third Michelin star, and uh, noted as the best restaurant in the world. What happened after Noma started getting this recognition is that Copenhagen saw a spike in tourism and also a lot of other restaurants started seeing that this was possible. And so right now you have Copenhagen becoming the gastronomic capital of the world and people traveling to Copenhagen, they, I think a lot of them are going there mainly just to dine at these restaurants. And so it's incredible what foods and restaurants kind of, what they have to do with everything (laughs) in a way. Totally. I mean, it's the basis of culture in some ways. And I find this topic so fascinating and juicy, and you're bringing it up at a super timely time because I'm about to interview um, someone from Norway on Norway's national tourism strategy and how food fits into it. Mm -hmm. And it's funny to me because when I think of the Nordic nations, I don't actually think of food first. Like It's still kind of up and coming that we're figuring out how to really make trips designed around food or really express what is our food culture? What's our food heritage? Like expose people to it, that that becomes a main driver for coming to visit. And, you know, I'm comparing this to places like Italy and France and even Japan that are just bastions of food and gastronomy and culture for people all around the world. And it doesn't quite feel to me like we're there yet, but we're trying. Uh, Exactly. That's really, that's a really good point. And it's something that I've kind of said, and I've been asked a lot about like, how is Icelandic food and what is traditional Icelandic food? And like, uh, I might make someone mad when I say this, but I often answer with like, oh, traditional Icelandic food. It's not good. <laughs> <Doesn't>, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of true. It's kind of true because like we didn't have, we had long cold winters. So what had, what we had to do was ferment. We had to use, we started eating rotten food and like, I'm up to trying everything once, but Every time someone has offered me the fermented shark that people kind of know from Iceland and is kind of a ritual of passage that if you're coming to Iceland, you have to try the fermented shark. All of the people in Iceland eat that. That's not true. I've never, I've never tasted it once in my life. I've always managed somehow to like uh, get around that. Get around that. And uh, (laughs) the thing is also we don't have the kind of techniques and the old way of cooking things. And in the, in the 1950s, Icelandic people were not, they were, the, food they were, the food they were eating was a little bit weird. <laughs> Compared to Italy, France, where you have this heritage and you have the cooking techniques that go with the produce. In Iceland, mm-hmm. we only had the produce, but we weren't fully utilizing the way we could cook it. 
and we didn't have the know-how. But in later years, and especially in the past like 30, 40, 50 years, Icelandic cuisine and Icelandic cooking has just gone up. It's evolved like 500 years in 50 years compared to something that's like in Italy, you still have the same heritage of cooking and techniques that you they've been doing for uh, forever. And uh, mm-hmm. but what we have in Iceland is some of the most amazing produce you can get. We have the Icelandic cod that is it's much fatter than uh, the cod that you can find elsewhere. You get much bigger pieces if you do Icelandic bakalau. It just it gives you a much like juicier piece, and the fish is just it tastes so good. Uh, we have the lambs. The Icelandic lamb is grazing free the entire summer and lives a better life than many people, I think, just like enjoying the Icelandic nature. And then uh, what we have and what we are utilizing at Nordic Wasabi is we have the geothermal heat, we have the renewable energy resources, and we've been growing vegetables and fruits and greenhouses for uh, many years now. And so there's a lot of knowledge behind that. So I think uh, Iceland is a country that I feel could be fully sustainable if they needed to be. We could grow anything in Iceland. I think we have a lot of really, really interesting produce that just tastes natural and fresh. But that story of self-sufficiency is so interesting. And I love what you said that within 50 years, we've done like 500 years worth of innovation because a lot of the products you're known for are one, a bit more animal-based. It isn't like the fields of Italy where you have so much like fresh tomatoes Mm. and fresh produce. And I mean, fruits and vegetables. There's other things that you have. But now with greenhouses, you are able to produce a lot of those things we're used to seeing in the grocery store, like peppers or cucumbers or whatever else you can think of, that then you think, but instead of importing all this, we can actually grow it. Mm -hmm. And that changes things. And it changes like the definition of what local is and how we consider that. So can you talk a little bit more about the greenhouse technology in Iceland and why it's so advanced and kind of how that works and what kind of things are grown in greenhouses besides wasabi? (laughs) Uh, the thing is, what we have in Iceland is um, the geothermal heat. And I think uh, actually some of the first greenhouses in Iceland were in Kverakerdi, which is uh, 20, 30 minutes outside of Reykjavik. Kverakerdi actually means just a place full of hot springs. It's an area that yields a lot of geothermal heats. So uh, most of what is grown in Iceland is, it is cucumbers, it's bell peppers, it is tomatoes, because... If you're going to the supermarket, you're probably in every single trip, you're picking up one of these items. It's a household thing. So it makes sense to grow this and sell it in basically the domestic market because there's such a high demand for these products. One of the reasons why uh, I think most people grow tomatoes, cucumbers, bell peppers is it's accessible in a way you can uh, you can probably mm. find something uh, called the greenhouse catalog and you can just go through pages of like tomato growing equipment and bell pepper growing equipment and you don't find wasabi growing equipment for greenhouses in the nordic hemisphere anywhere so we've had to kind of innovate on that one also like i mentioned earlier one of the reasons why we started growing wasabi is because of its high price high market price and it makes sense for export If you were to export tomatoes, cucumbers, or bell peppers, it would have to be in such high quantities to make sense to compete with a market that has much larger land, cheaper uh, workforce, and a much larger market. We've been kind of the first ones that are growing vegetables in Iceland and exporting them at this scale. We're constantly running into some sort of like bureaucratic problems and hitting these walls that I'd say are just the kind of uh, pioneering problems and the entrepreneurial walls that we are trying to uh, climb over and run through. And hopefully after we have done that once, uh, we will kind of pave the way for uh, others to be able to do the same or similar things. And it will be then an easier process as they might have someone to actually talk to instead of us trying Mm. to figure it out on our own. But uh, like I said, I think we can grow anything with the amount of 
fresh water we have. We have the most amount of fresh water per capita anywhere in the world. And I think that water mm -hmm. is going to be the most major resource in the near future uh, when it comes to growing and just uh, sustaining the entire population in the country. It's going to be all about water in the next 10, 50, 100 years. And uh, mm -hmm. it's uh, probably the most valuable resource we have. But then we also have the geothermal heat that enables us to actually heat up the greenhouse with uh, environmentally friendly uh, technology instead of if, for example, we had to heat up or cool down a greenhouse somewhere in uh, mainland Europe where it gets hotter in the summer and colder in the winter, then uh, we would be probably burning some uh, fossil fuels or using some uh, energy sources that are not as sustainable as what we have in Iceland. And also like for us to cool down a greenhouse, you, you kind of open up a window 90% of the time because it's always cold on the outside. Right. I mean, a lot of, uh, we always get the question, uh, why don't you grow something else? How about like avocados? It's like everyone is using avocados. Everyone knows avocados. And then it's like, yeah, um, do you know how large avocado trees get? <laughs> and it would take so much space. And I mean, if we look at that, for example, like avocados technically weren't a thing 10, 15, 20 years ago like they are today. I read an article somewhere that I think avocados exist because of a marketing gimmick. It used to be called crocodile fruit and people didn't want to buy crocodile fruit. So in the 1940s or 50s, some uh, Californian marketing geniuses came together and rebranded it as avocado. So now you get avocado as a household item and full shelves in every supermarket. I just find the whole thing interesting because as you talk, my mind wanders to two places. One is this whole discussion around vertical farming, growing up instead of growing out. And then there's a big conversation around resources with that. And greenhouses do tend to be more sustainable, especially if you have so many renewable resources that make it very energy efficient to grow. And then there at the other side, there's this conversation around the fact that should we be able to buy avocados in every single store everywhere in the world and have it be possible? And then if you're like, well, whoa, you're able to grow wasabi locally, which technically is from Japan, but then you don't have to ship it all the way from Japan to the Nordics where they might be wanting to use it. So that is a better footprint, but it's also, it's not from there. So you just run into all the, I have no answers for this, but it's just a very interesting thing to talk and think about when we talk about the future of our food system and what will the norm be? And Yeah, I mean, a lot of the biggest questions don't have any certain answers. And I think this is a really big one. And this is something that I feel like the world needs to focus on. It is trying to eat what's closer to you and actually knowing the environment a bit. Uh, I think one of the things that should honestly be taught in school is like how to read labels and how to figure out what the origins yeah. of a product is and actually kind of conscious shopping. Just uh, if you're going into the store and you're actually thinking like, okay, I have this here in my hand that's grown in Spain and I have the same product in a way that's grown in Iceland. The one that's grown in Iceland costs a little bit higher. So if you just like think about that, you're going to Put the Icelandic product down and you're just going to put the one that's cheaper in the in the cart <laughs> because you kind of don't know the difference but then you think about it like why is this cheaper even though it was grown on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean and shipped all the way to Iceland and packaged and so you start thinking like why is this cheaper also how much of this will end up going to waste why don't we pick the one that's uh, grown as close to us as possible and i think it's just because people don't realize they at this moment sometimes they don't care but it's just because they haven't been taught to care and then you also have on the other hand you have people that care obsessively about this stuff and i think what we right now need is we need not like a few people to be 100 perfect when it comes to this we need everyone to be a little bit better at least a little bit more informed about what they are consuming, what they are eating, how they are eating it, where this grown and and how much how much you should pay for it. I think that is a there are so many studies that show that despite efforts, people do tend to choose the cheapest food item. And I do know there's a lot of experiments happening now of the price you normally see versus the true cost of the food. Like mm -hmm. 
with all the sustainability and climate factors and everything else that goes into it. So you can see the price parity between the two. But I think most of us, you know, it's a lot of decisions and data that you have to go through as an individual to consciously and actively make that choice. And even then you can get into a debate with yourself of like, is that really the right one? Is that better? <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's, it's hard. It's hard to navigate and we're all in this together. But I think that that is going to be a huge area. You're totally right. And I do want to talk a little bit about um, just sustainability profile of Nordic Wasabi because you are making it with all these renewable resources. Can you just talk a little bit about how you think about that since I know it's a part of who you are as well? Yeah, like we have the geothermal heat so we can heat up the greenhouses instead of using some biofuels that we would maybe have to do elsewhere. We care about this aspect quite a lot because if your company and especially if you are a company that's growing something and working in the food industry, sustainability should be one of the main factors you should be considering. To me, it seems like the only thing that maybe isn't sustainable in what you're doing is the fact that stuff has to be flown out yeah. within like 24 hours to arrive at the location so the ingredient doesn't go bad. But I know you've taken efforts against that as well. Yeah, we. Uh, I mean, it's, it's always going to be some cost of transport. Iceland is kind of strategically placed in the middle of the Atlantic. So we have shorter routes to both the U.S. market and the European market than, uh, for example, Wasabi coming out of Japan. We have these flights that are going out of Eilstadir and uh, Reykjavik like three, four times a day. And we have a really good cooperation with uh, Iceland there. Um, the plane is going anyways, and we can get a few boxes on board of that. And then uh, THL comes and picks it up from us in the city center after we've uh, kind of re-labeled it. And then uh, it goes wherever in the world. And it's amazing sometimes when everything works that you can have wasabi that you order from Iceland that's harvested and it's at your door in less than 24 hours. And Mm. I'm just, I'm always amazed when something like this happens. We do try to work with THL and we're hopefully going to be part of uh, what they call Go green climate uh, program, which is trying to carbon neutral all the flights and all the shipments. And it's something that's just beginning. So it's in the first steps. But uh, for us, uh, sustainability is a really big factor. And we, we mm. want to be able to proudly tell that we have this certification that it's only renewable energy sources. And we are not dipping into some water reserves that end up uh, like what has happened with avocado and quinoa and stuff like that in South America. You hear about uh, small villages that are disappearing because all of the water has been dried up to go to avocado and quinoa production for kind of uh, trendy Western diets. And we're not uh, tapping into some water reservoir. It makes sense. And it brings up this question of how to scale, because right now you just have one greenhouse, right? Or two greenhouses in the eastern part of Iceland. Um, But can you speak a little bit about the size of your current production, how many employees you are, like what is the actual state of the operations? And then what does it look like to sustainably grow? So right now we have the... uh... It's called Valgerðarstaðir uh, in Eilstaðir. So that's uh, the official name of where we are located. And uh, over there, we now, uh, we own the land. So we have two greenhouses, one that is fully uh, operational full of wasabi and uh, another one that's ready for planting. Uh, we have some facilities in the area as well, an opportunity for growth and creating some more uh, if it's going to be greenhouses or some more services that we can do on that land. Uh, the company, it's uh, uh, it's uh, me and Ragnar, two of us that are in the city. And then we have uh, Ertla, or horticulturists, who is uh, doing all the harvesting. And she is the person that takes care of the greenhouse. And then uh, also we have uh, Tanya, which is uh, head of the social media. And it's all kind of, uh, it's a small company. A lot of people get kind of, they they are shocked when they find out like, oh, how many full-time employees do you have for this big production that you have and this brand that I'm seeing everywhere? It's like, oh yeah, it's it's us and then one other person. <laughs> so we're three. And then we have the greenhouse that kind of has its own personality and calls if it has any issues. So it's uh, 
it's very and that's part of the high tech bit that it can text you and be like hey yeah. my light is off yeah Fix it's me. like <laughs> hey i'm super hot like now and it goes into this like it goes into this uh, needy spouse kind of thing it goes like i'm hot i'm cold and it gives you it gives you this information and we are right now we have in one full greenhouse we are able to supply uh, the entire like uh, restaurant market that we are currently selling, selling to but then we have the plans to fill the other one as well and what we want to do is hopefully in the future we will be able to have some sort of service or uh, where we can uh, accommodate guests who want to come and look at the production or have a small restaurant that supports the brand that might uh, uh, be um, serving just some sashimi from uh, the near waters nearby waters yeah it goes back to that tourism point right uh-huh. like can you go see where the food is from where it's produced and experience it firsthand yeah and we and it's um it's constantly trying to think of how we can uh, create something more a beast because it's a really up and coming area what enables you to keep the production big but the staff so small <laughs> it's a lot of just uh kind of writing a different title under each email, depending on what you're doing. I can be the sales and marketing director, or I can be uh, the social media manager or something or something. And just uh, depending on who you are talking to, you have to kind of be a chameleon in this startup industry mm-hmm. to be able to go into all the jobs that are uh, that are available and that are need to be done. But then also it's just, we have a really... Um, yeah, Atla, who is in the greenhouse, she's a, she's a force of nature and she just manages to uh, harvest as much as we need. And then uh, the irrigation and the lights and everything, we control that from the city. And then it's quite automatic as well, everything in regards to the growing of the wasabi. So it's just the harvest that's done by hand. And we uh, we use all parts of the plants. We try to minimize food waste as much as possible. And in the beginning, both the leaves and the flowers were kind of a side thing that wasn't supposed to like be anything. Just the first restaurant in Iceland that was like, can I try the wasabi leaves maybe? And we're like, sure, let's just like give you a box and like, all of a sudden, it's become one of the main selling products that we have. The leaves and the flowers are equally as popular at the fine dining restaurants as the wasabi stems themselves are. It's just um, there are so many fun ways where you can use wasabi, not just with sushi. We uh, we use it for cocktails. We do the wasabi mule. That's really a popular drink. We use uh, the flowers and leaves to either create dressings for salad or the leaves themselves in different salads. And then what we see more experienced chefs doing with these products, it's, it's mind blowing. I mean, it's, uh, it's been jellied, it's been oiled, it's been put in sauce, it's been dried, it's been uh, frozen, it's been an ice cream, it's been, uh, it's been in drinks. Whatever you can think of. Yeah. So it has a lot of, a lot of different uses and it's a, it's a fun product. It's still it's still new. It's still most of the people who are trying it are still trying it for the first time. So you get this kind of kick for the first time, and it is this mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Just watching people always be amazed and kind of like asking questions, and you have to kind of convince them. It's like, wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me that this wasabi is grown in Iceland? And they're like, yeah, nah, yes, it is. Like, no, it's not. And like, yeah, you have to convince people that we're actually doing it. And so what is next for the company? Yeah, uh, the bottlenecks maybe are some on the bureaucratic side and some regulations, but that's all being taken care of and we're working on that. And then uh, it's uh, the fact that it's a fresh vegetable. So a lot of people come into the store and they want to buy it and they want to take it home and showcase something as like a souvenir from Iceland to bring home Icelandic wasabi. But then it's like, yeah, yeah, you definitely take it. How long are you staying? Like, yeah, four days and I'm driving around in the car in the summertime. So uh, I don't have access to a refrigerator. It's uh, it's a product that needs to be kind of kept cold and shipped quickly. Sooner than later, hopefully we will be able to have a few products that are maybe not as perishable and will travel more easily. Yeah. So 
I'd love to ask you now the last four questions that everyone on this show gets the pleasure of answering. And the first one is, what is your vision for the future of food in 10 to 15 years? I think water is going to be a key element in all of this. And I think having access to clean water is something that we in Iceland shouldn't take for granted. And it gives us the opportunity to, like I said, grow anything. And it gives us just the opportunity to live a little bit more sustainably with fresh water coming out of the tap everywhere. And I don't think there are many vegetable farms around the world that are using drinking water to actually water their plants. And Mm -hmm. that's, uh, I think water is going to be one of the key factors in the next 10 to 15 or 50 or 100 years. But then also people are becoming more, more noticeable and they are actually researching. Hopefully they're going to be researching a little bit further what they eat and thinking about the true cost and They're watching documentaries, they're reading articles, they're reading books, they're listening to podcasts, they're trying to get information that previously wasn't as available as it is today. And then uh, I've seen a lot of improvements in cell culture technology and how they are growing meats now. And it's just in the, I remember like five years ago, seeing a YouTube video that was like, oh my God, this impossible burger, it costs $2,000 to create one burger. And now like in the five years that have passed, it's become much more available and the cost is dramatically reducing. And I think in the next 10 to 15 years, that's going to be a huge factor because I think it's going to be difficult to get people to completely stop eating meat. But if you can convince them that this is perfectly made this is the same stuff without all the animal cruelty and uh, the sustainability angle that the co2 emissions are much much smaller and you can compare it to animal farming and uh, so i hope that people are going to be looking into what they are buying where it is coming from how it is made and uh, yeah and what do you think we're missing to make that vision happen it's just uh, it's a matter of, I think we have a few people trying to be 100% sustainable, doing everything 100% right, uh, instead of having 100% of the people trying to do at least a little bit right. I think that's one of the main factors. It seems like you see a lot of posts from people on social media uh, that are fully vegan, fully sustainable, that are posting what they're doing and getting the word out there so it might kind of seem like it's a much larger crowd but it's just a it's a very loud crowd but they aren't as large a percentage as kind of the world needs it to be i think we need everyone to reduce a little bit of how they consume uh, foods then uh, i think that comes with just more knowledge i think we need to inform people i think we need to put it in the school's curriculums like how to read labels how to how to be a conscious uh, consumer of food but uh, i think it's uh, trying to at least eat as close to home as possible i think that's mm. going to be one of the biggest factors at least when it comes to fresh produce yeah knowledge is power isn't it yeah <laughs> and when it comes to nordic wasabi what collaborations are you maybe looking for? Currently, we are undergoing and preparing for a possible new investment round. So like everyone, we're always looking for a little bit of money if that's anywhere. So, <laughs> But no, it's uh, we look for collaborations with everyone who is interested in the products. Uh, we are willing to send a sample to any restaurant that hits us up. And because, like I said, we have faith in the actual product itself. So. We are kind of sure that if anyone wants to try it out, that afterwards they would be more likely to become a customer because the product is Mm. good. And then uh, we try to collaborate with a lot of different Icelandic brands and trying to find some new and exciting ways to actually utilize the wasabi plants. And uh, of course, it's all the chefs around the world that are using our product that uh, are kind of the main collaborators because that's where... We're getting the ideas. That's where we're getting 
the prettiest pictures of our products and how it's being used. And that's how they are getting the word out there. They're kind of the brand mm-hmm. ambassadors for the product. And a lot of them are even without us having to had ask them about it because they just talk about it because they are amazed. They love it as well. Uh, in the future as well, the next few years, we are going to try to bring some sort of a product line that includes Wasabi to the market. And we can uh, we can go even further and say that uh, we will have researched every, every atom of the Wasabi plant and figure out mm-hmm. uh, what is giving it its flavor. What has, uh, does it have the medicinal purposes that have been researched a little bit? And do we finally have the greenhouses and the capacity to grow it for that further research. Uh, There was someone who called us that uh, read somewhere on the internet that fresh wasabi was really good for male pattern boldness and he wanted to buy some and try it out. So it's just uh, a lot of opportunities, but I think uh, right now, mostly we are just looking for more restaurants to feature the product and to try it out and to just to spread the gospel of real fresh wasabi and good sustainable produce. I think that's um, what we need the most. So how can someone get in touch with you if they want to try it, if they want to collaborate, whatever, if they want to invest, um, what's the best way to get in touch? It's always uh, the website. We have a website. It's nordicwasabi.com. Very simple. And, uh, it's uh, there you can both purchase uh, wasabi, the gift box, the leaves, the flowers, and every all of our products. And we ship them all over the world. And then um, you can send us an email. The email is there on the website. But then it's also it's uh, fresh at nordicwasabi.com. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on and telling us all about wasabi. I mean, who would have thunk it? Such a good story. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to let me uh, blabber on about Wasabi. All right, that's all for today. So what were your thoughts on this episode? I'd love to hear them. Feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or Instagram or email me at nordicfoodtechpodcast at gmail.com. If you really liked it, consider becoming a patron and supporting the show for a few dollars every month. The link to do so is in the show notes or visit www.nordicfoodtech.io. Your contribution will make all the difference and enable me to tell more good stories about how we're creating a better future through food. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.